Thanks, Jess. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm going to start by watching something on the screen. Let's see if it works. It's my fault if it doesn't work. Click play in the middle of it, and maybe we'll get it going. I saw the mouse for a second there. If you press right again, will it play? Okay. And see the little play sign? No, nah, space bar, right. He's just going to go to the next slide. That's on me. Come on. One more crack. Let's see if we can find the mouse. Oh, I'm getting nice. It's not going to work, is it? No. Nah. I've got to work in a one out three congregation today. That's okay. It, uh, how am I going to start this? That's okay. It, have you ever seen those videos? Um, I, use, I just love watching YouTube where, where they do an experiment where they try to um, see if people will follow the crowds. This is a video where they fill a waiting room for an eye, what do you call it, an eye doctor? Opt- optologist, you know the ones. They fill a whole waiting room with a whole bunch of people. Everyone's in on it except for one person. And what they're going to do is every two minutes a bell will ring and everyone in the room will stand up and sit down without speaking and just go, that's a normal thing to do. One person is unaware and they try to figure out, is this person going to follow the crowd? Are they going to do it? No reason why, totally weird thing to do. It takes three rings. She starts doing it and they go, okay. They start doing it for about 10 minutes. Everyone's doing it. And they figure, is she going to do it by herself when no one else is in the room? And so one by one, they call people out of the waiting room into the doctor and one by one they leave until it's just her and they have the cameras playing and they press the bell and she stands up on her own. It's incredible. I'd, I'd encourage you to go spend a half an hour on YouTube this afternoon watching stuff like that. It's fantastic. And I reckon there can be times in life where we're not exactly sure what we're meant to do and sometimes we don't really know why we're meant to do it either. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Maybe you felt like that in your job before. I don't really know what I'm meant to do, but I'm kind of meant to be here, or I know what I'm meant to do, but I don't know why. What difference does it make? Have you ever felt like that in a relationship? Have you ever felt like like that with your kids or at uni or with friends? I don't really know what I'm meant to do, and even if I do, I don't really know why I'm meant to do it. And I reckon lots of us can feel like that when it comes to our faith. I'm pretty sure I'm meant to do something, live differently in some kind of way, but I don't exactly know what it looks like. Or even if I kind of know some of the things I'm meant to do, I don't really know why I'm meant to do it. I wish I had a clearer picture of both of those things. Do you ever feel like that about the Christian faith? This passage is going to help us get really clear on how to live as a Christian and why. And it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge to those of us who know lots and lots about the Christian faith, who know lots about the spiritual truths of God's word. Because it's possible to be someone who knows lots and lots, but doesn't change lots lots and lots as our knowledge grows. Is that you? This passage is going to show that that cannot be the case. A true knowledge of God and his word always leads to change, if we've understood it. But that also might not be you. You might be someone, you know what Christians do, right? Christians, what they do, they're people who follow rules. And you know why? The reason why they follow the rules is to get to heaven. 
That's kind of the way that religion and Christianity works. This passage is going to show that that way of thinking is completely wrong. Yes, we're going to see that it matters how God's people live, but it's for a completely different and more profound reason than you'd expect. And it's actually something that impacts you regardless of whether you have a faith or not. How do you live as a Christian and why do you do it? Uh, Structure of the passage, Peter gives us five commands, five ways to live out the Christian life. And more significantly, he gives us profound reasons for why to do each one. And so we're going to work our way through the five commands and dive into the reasons for why he gives it. How do you live as a Christian and why? Let's get stuck in. First, live in hope because you have a living hope. What's the command? Have a look halfway through verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. One day Jesus will return and when he does, everything will be revealed. His kingdom will be revealed for what it is. All things will be made right. And when that happens, you will experience the grace that will be brought to you if you're a Christian. God's riches, his goodness, his blessings that are kept in heaven and waiting for you will be yours when Jesus returns. You'll get to experience it and enjoy it fully. You cannot imagine the wonder that is waiting for you when Jesus returns. It is beyond comprehension. Peter says, set your hope on that. Orient your life around that hope. Look for those things, long for those things, dream about those things. See, what do you, what do you make sacrifices for? Or what is the thing that would make you the most sad if it got taken away? Or if, uh, if you got a phone call right now and you need to step out of church, what would be the worst news that that person on the other end of the phone could give you? What would that be? That thing that just came to your mind, that is probably the thing that you set your hope on. There's lots of temporary things we can set our hope on. Uh, relational happiness, financial security, having a pleasure-filled life, making sure you experience all the things that are out there to experience. You could set your hope on those things, and we often do. You can orient your life around those things, look for, long for, dream about those things. But Peter says, no, no, set your hope fully on Jesus' coming and the grace that will be revealed when he does. Don't be distracted by these passing things. Set your hope fully on heaven. How do you do that? Peter says you need to cultivate two things if you want to do that well. Have a look at verse 13 again. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. If you want to set your hope fully on heaven, you need to prepare your minds and, have a sober, and be sober-minded. It's not so much don't get drunk physically, though the Bible is very clear that drunkenness has no place in the Christian life. It's really talking about having a clear mind, a non-clouded mind, an alert mind that can see clearly the reality of what's going on and what really matters. 
a mind that's not so clouded by the day-to-day that you forget about or get distracted from the hope that's set before you by the things that are in front of you. No, be alert, be sober-minded so that you can see clearly the hope of heaven, the hope of Jesus' return, and set your life around that. But why? Why should we set our hope fully? It's because of the word at the start of verse 13. Therefore. See, in light of everything Peter said in the first 12 verses, he says, therefore now we should set our hope. So what did he say in the first 12 verses? Remember back to last week, it was all about the living hope we have in Jesus, verse 3. Salvation, an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and kept in heaven for you. That is what you have. That is who you are. You have salvation and every blessing coming to you in heaven and you've been born again and made for that end. That is the reality for you if you're a Christian. You have a living hope, verse 3. So live in hope. Verse 13. That's the first thing for living as a Christian. You have a living hope, so live in hope. Second thing about living the Christian life, Peter wants to say, is be holy as he is holy. The command is in verse 14 and 15. It's kind of got a negative side and a positive side. See if you can pick it up. Have a look at verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Two sides, don't be conformed, do be holy. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know when you're at the beach and uh, you want to make a sandcastle, it might have been a little while since you've done that, uh, but you kind of get a bucket of any shape and you put the sand in it, and when you do that, the sand kind of conforms to the shape of the bucket, no matter what the shape of the bucket is. The sand conforms to the mould of the bucket. Peter says, don't be like that. Don't be conformed to the mould. The mould of what? The passions of your former ignorance. It's a way of talking about your way of living before you became a Christian. The cravings, the selfish ways, the lust, the desires for things that you had that were not God. Don't be conformed to those things. Now, you're to resist those things and start to do something else. The positive side of the command, be holy in all your conduct. Holy is a bit of a weird word that I think we only really use in the Bible. It means unique, set apart, separate, other. When I first moved out of home, I moved into a share house with four guys and it was exactly as you'd expect. And I moved into a room that wasn't really a room, it was actually a loft that was attached kind of directly to the main living room. It didn't have a door, was kind of the main issue with it. And so if you're sitting on the couch watching TV and you look left, you would just see me sleeping. Uh, And so I decided I needed to make something holy. I took a bed sheet and I set it apart for a very special purpose. This bed sheet was not going to be like the rest of my bed sheets. This bed sheet became unique, set apart for the purpose of being my door. It became my holy bed sheet. That is what we're to be like. Different from the rest of the world. We're to be holy in our 
desires, in our passions, in how we live, a kind of separateness for God and his purposes. Don't be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but be holy. Why? Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, because God is holy. Verse 14, we're to be like obedient children, we're to be like our Father. God your, fa- God your Father is holy. You've been brought into his family, and so now take on the family likeness and be holy as well. We can sometimes think that the standard of holiness uh, we're kind of aiming for is, well, I'm just going to try to not do the obvious sins that other people can see, or I'm going pretty well in holiness if I'm kind of at least as holy as the other people around me. But the standard of holiness we're called to is far higher. Be like God. Now, importantly, the command isn't to become holy as though we can kind of make ourselves holy through a bunch of effort. The command is more specifically, live out the reality of holiness that God has already brought you into. Be who you are. So what does it look like for us to be holy? Stacks of things. He says, be holy in all your conduct. But here's a couple of things. Are you separate from the world in what you dream about, in what you long for? Uh, Lots of our world dreams about having the perfect house, going on the perfect holiday, living for the weekend where you can finally do whatever pleases you and you don't have to care about anyone else. Does what you dream about and long for reflect that you've been set apart for God and his purposes? Are you living in holiness when it comes to your bank statements? How will our money reflect that we are holy, that we're set apart for God? In all your conduct, you shall be holy, for I am holy, says God. Don't be conformed, but be holy. That's the second thing. The third thing Peter wants to say about living as a Christian is, live in fear because the judge has ransomed you. Have a look at the end of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We live here on earth as exiles. Rod showed us that last week, remember, we are foreigners, we're strangers, this world is not our home, we're just passing through, here for a short time and on our way to our true home in heaven. And Peter says that while you're here on this kind of short camping trip, conduct yourselves with fear in awe, in in reverence before a holy God, taking him seriously. Not taking him lightly, not dabbling in sin, thinking it doesn't really matter anyway, but being clear on how holy, big and powerful the God of the universe is and responding with appropriate fear and reverence. Why? We get two reasons. First, he's the impartial judge. Have a look at verse 17 again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, if you're a Christian, God is your father. But he's also 
the impartial judge. All of us will one day stand before God and be called to account for the lives that we've lived. Even Christians, though we'll be saved by the blood of Christ, our deeds will still be brought before God and judged. And that is a terrifying prospect, isn't it? And that's exactly the point. Have a right fear and reverence of God in your conduct now because that day is coming. When I was in primary school, I used to, there was kind of a year where I exchanged secret notes with a girl and kind of, I'd write a note and pass on to my friend and he'd pass on to her friend, which would get to her and then, you know, she, the chain would come back down and uh, it'd be things like, I like you, do you still like me? And on and on. And I kind of kept all these notes. I can't throw these out. This is gold. And so I kept all these notes in a drawer in my room. I wanted to keep it a secret from my family. It wasn't Fort Knox. I don't know why I thought that was going to be the place where it would, you know, but that's where I kept it. And one day my mum was cleaning my room and she found the stash of notes. And I was horrified. All of my secrets had been revealed and brought out into the open. It wasn't a great hiding spot. That drawer was always going to be opened at some point. It's the same for us. A day is coming when the drawer kind of full of the secrets of your life, the things that you wish no one knew about or that you hope no one ever finds out about, will be opened, brought out. And not just your mum's going to find it, the holy and living God. So live your lives in reverent fear because all will be revealed and brought to account. Second reasons in verse 18. Have a look at that. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the time of your exile here, conduct yourself with fear because you've been ransomed from futile and foolish living by the most precious commodity in the world, the blood of Christ. Now, that word ransom comes from the world of slavery, right? A ransom is a payment that you make to bring someone or buy them out of captivity. The Bible is very clear that naturally we are all captives. Captives to sin, captives to futile and foolish living. We reject God and live lives on our own term and there's nothing we can do about it. We all do it. But if you're a Christian, you have been ransomed from that life. You've been bought out of that life and into a relationship with God. And the payment was the precious blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God. Don't go back to the life that you were ransomed from. Don't make light of it. Don't make a joke out of it by continuing to live futile and foolish lives. How are you going at cultivating an appropriate fear before the God who is your judge and the God who has ransomed you with the precious blood of Christ? Do you have an appropriate seriousness to cutting out sin and living before this God? Peter says, live in fear because God is the judge and he's ransomed you. The fourth thing about the Christian life Living the Christian life is love one another because you've been purified and reborn. Have a look at verse 22. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Christians are called to love our enemies and to love people in the world, but there is a special kind of love reserved for your brothers and sisters in Christ. An earnest love, a deep love, a strenuous love from a heart of genuine care and concern for the other. This is one of the things I love about our church and that this kind of stuff happens. People genuinely love each other, especially during COVID. People are just cooking meals left, right and centre, doing grocery shops for each other. It's been fantastic. But there is so much more we can do, isn't there? Do you have a deep and genuine love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Love one another. Why? Again, we get two reasons. First is what we've been saved for. Have a look at verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. By your obedience to the truth, that is, having submitted to and come under the rule of the truth of the gospel, by doing that, you've purified your soul. You've been made clean. You've been saved. God has worked in you to bring you under the truth of the gospel. And he says that the reason, or one of the reasons for having done that, is for the purpose of sincere brotherly love. Now, that's not just a term to love the blokes among us. Uh, the term kind of is meant to represent all Christians as kind of this one family, one person. Love each other. We've been saved for that purpose. Love each other. And since that's what we've been saved for, we need to go out and do it. Second reason, verse 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Love one another because of the eternal nature of salvation. We've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the eternal word of God. You've been made a completely new person with an eternal salvation, so love one another. Love one another from a pure heart because you've been purified and reborn. Peter's got one more thing to tell us about living the Christian life. Number five, long for spiritual milk to grow up in salvation. When you look at it, it kind of seems like verse one is the main command. Have a look at verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But really, it probably better reads as having put away all malice and deceit and so on. It's kind of the thing that we're to do before and during the main command, which you see in verse two. So have a look at verse two is the main thing. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. This is my infant, Marley. And that is her longing for milk. This is pretty much our whole lives at the moment. When she's longing for milk, there is nothing you can do to satisfy her except stop everything that you're doing and give her milk. 
You can't distract her with a toy. You can't just reason with her and explain, darling, we're going to be home in 10 minutes. If you could wait, that would really help us out. When she longs for milk, which is pretty much all the time, all bets are off. She's got tunnel vision for one thing and one thing only. Peter says, that's fantastic. Be like that. Long for milk. Not physical milk, but spiritual milk. The, the truth of God's word. Where to crave it. Long for it. Don't be distracted by the things. Don't be satisfied by the things. Cultivate a deep desire for the truth of God's word. Crave spiritual milk. Why? Verse 2. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have tasted how good the Lord is, haven't you? So we looked at last week, you have this incredible hope and inheritance. You've tasted God is good. So keep feeding on spiritual truth to grow up in your salvation. We want to be mature in our salvation with deep roots in our faith. So long for pure spiritual milk. Five commands. Five ways to live out the Christian life. Set your hope fully. Don't be conformed, but be holy. Live in fear. Love one another. Long for pure spiritual milk. Hope, holy, fear, love, and long. How are you going at those things? One of the dangers for us will be to take on the information and then live this coming week Kind of exactly the same as we lived last week. Did you ever get that from a sermon? What part of the Christian life do you need to grow in and make a change in this week? Do you need to be less caught up in this world and hold more loosely to the things of this world and work on setting your hope more fully on the hope of heaven? Or do you need to cast off the passions of your life before you knew Jesus, you knew Jesus and grow in an area of holiness to be more like God? Or do you need to cast off your cavalier attitude towards God and cultivate an appropriate fear and reverence in your actions and attitude before him? Or have you not really invested in the Christian community? You know, you've kind of been keeping everyone at a distance for whatever reason and not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you need to change that? Or do you love the community, but you don't care so much for the truths that shape it? Do you need to grow in longing for the spiritual truths found in God's word? Which one of those do you need to grow in? Probably all of them, but which one? What's one thing you could do this week to help in that space? See, to say, I'm going to grow in my hoping this week, and so... What is that actually going to do? Am I going to go and stare at some clouds and then and think hope, 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 hope? But what's something you could do this week to grow in one of those spaces? I'm going to give you 30 seconds. This would be a great thing to keep chatting to the person next to you about after church. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to have a think about it.
reasons. But even more importantly, he's given us five or more profound reasons. Did you notice what all the reasons were about? If you thought that Christianity is about following rules to be a good person, this passage has totally smashed that way of thinking, hasn't it? The reasons are all based on the gospel. What God has already done for you, who he's already made you to be. See, we already have a living hope. The command is, just live in light of it. Not to try to get it, it already belongs to you. The command is, be holy, because you've already been made holy and brought into God's family. Now, be who you are. The command is to live in reverent fear. Because you've already been ransomed from the precious blood of Christ. The command is to love. Because you have already been born again through the living word of God. And it's to long for spiritual milk. To grow up in the salvation that is already yours. You see? How do you live as a Christian? It's always a joyful response to the fact that we've been saved. And that God has already poured out his blessings on us. It is never in order to earn those things. And what a great blessing that is. If you're someone here this morning who, don't, who doesn't have those things, if you feel like, I don't have salvation, I don't have the assurance of heaven, I'm not part of God's family, the great news is you don't have to live in a particular way to earn those things. You can have all of those things as a gift. You need to receive it. And we're going to look at that a bit more next week. So please come back next week. But for those of us who already have those things, if you belong to Jesus, how do you live now and why? Live holy lives now. Not because you need to get anything from God, but because you already have everything from God. Live holy lives motivated by the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are so thankful that even when we were your enemies, when we deserved nothing but your wrath, you would choose to give us everything, that you would save us, that you would give us the hope of heaven, that you would send your precious son to die for us. It is incredible news. Father, we pray that knowing those things, rather than make us not care about our lives now, might spur us on to even more live for your goodness and pleasure help us to set our hope on heaven the hope that we already have help us not to get distracted by the things of this world help us to grow into your likeness into your holiness help us to cultivate an appropriate fear before you recognizing you're not the god of playing harps father help us to love one another and help us to crave your word we pray that all these things would be for your glory We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.